So thank you for being here um, and, and being a part of what God's doing here. So um, yeah, good stuff. We're going to talk a little bit more about, about uh, the significance of what we just experienced here in just a little bit. But um, so this is going to be the first year in 15 years that I'm not going to coach. It's kind of the end of an era, you know, kind of the, the Bill Belichick. It's like if Bill Belichick would retire, you know, that's kind of what, I mean, I'm not saying I'm an amazing coach, but I'm an amazing coach and, and there's going to be a great void left in the coaching. We're just kidding. Just kidding. No, everybody's kind of like, it's about time. Goodness. Right. But, but I actually have coached way longer than I ever played. And I played a lot. I started coaching when, when Ian was a, a little twerp. And in like five years old, I started coaching him in junior jazz basketball in, in Lehigh at the rec center over there and at the legacy center. And it just kept on progressing and progressing and progressing. And, and uh, just the stage of life we're in and, and kids. <laughs> you okay back? <laughs> Drew, you okay? Do we need a... See, that's why you just want to come live, because if you're, you know, our friends that are online right now, what just happened was that Drew was in the bathroom in all the stack of chairs. I don't know what was happening, but they all fell in a very noisy fashion. There you go. Um, but anyhow, so it's, it's been fun because I've just kind of progressed up and progressed up, and, and, and I just got to gotta take a break, and it's going to be, it's gonna be a, a good change of pace in a lot of ways, but I'm going to miss a lot about it. One of the biggest things that I'm going to miss is the pregame. Because as we're sitting, like, like when we were playing club, you know, it's right before the game and stuff like that. And we've like, hey, we've been practicing like three times before this game. Way to go, you know. But as you get into the high school, the varsity rank, like you're, you're in that locker room. And I experienced that as a player. But as a coach, it's something entirely different because like I see it, the perspective. I see the, all the preparation. And then because I'm an old guy, I see the... Um, the difference, um, maybe let's mute, let's mute the, the instrument channels there. Um, but I see that you have a game. It's game time. It's go time. And, and the window will close at some point. So let's make the most of every opportunity that we have. And, and I remember sitting in the locker room down in the basement at Westlake, and you have a locker room full of like 70, 80 kids, and it's stinky and they're gross, they're sweaty from warming up, and, and it's like the last hoorah before we go out and take the field, right? And you see the eyes. There's some kids that are so focused. They are prepared. They are ready. They know their job. They know already what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. There's other kids that are like deer in the headlights. They're kind of like, uh, I, what's going to happen? What, you know, it's sort of like, oh, sheep to wolves, man. You're going to get slaughtered, right? But then there's other blissfully unaware people. It's kind of like, oh, this is great. We're in a locker room, guys. Let's hang out, right? But the cool thing is, is that those who get it, they get it. You see it in their eyes. Yes, they're nervous. They're anxious, but they're prepared. They're ready. And one of the things that we always said was, hey, we got the nerves. We got the jitters. We got the excitement, but we're going to go out there. And within the first play, you're going to get smacked. It's go time. Nerves are out. We're in it, right? And that's where I want us to, to think about. If you've ever played sports, if you remember what it was like to be in the locker room before the game, if you've ever been 
in, in, a, in an orchestra or a band or a choir, and, and it's kind of like the curtains haven't opened yet, and you're backstage. If you, if you are uh, on a team and you're getting ready to give your presentation, right? Like you've got a sales pitch to go, and you've been working your tail off to make this happen, and, and the big wigs are in there, and you're, you're ready to go. Whatever it might be, you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's that pre-game jitters, that, that pre-pitch, that, that whatever it is, it's go time. And you know in just a second, everything is going to be in motion and life will forever be changed. There's no turning back. Well, we've been looking last week at how Jesus has been getting ready He's been preparing himself. He's been preparing the, the people for who he is and what he was going to do. And this morning, the starting gun fires and things launch out of the block. So we're going to be looking this morning at Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. It starts off in verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to the Galilee. Now, we're going to talk about that more in a couple weeks, about John getting arrested and stuff like that. But here's the, here's the thing, is that John was getting people ready, right? Make way the path of the Lord, right? Like he was out there preparing the path for the king to come. Well, the world as it was did not like that. There was a price to pay, and it was his freedom, right? And so he was arrested, he was locked up, and we're going to see in a couple weeks what ultimately happens there. But Jesus sees that. He doesn't run and hide. He's not, oh no, my buddy got arrested. I got to get out of here. I think he realizes that the southern part of the nation is hard soil. And he's kind of like, I'm going to go to the north where it's going to be more receptive. Now that's kind of interesting and we're going to see that here in a little bit. Verse 13, he went first to Nazareth and then left there and moved to Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. Now, what we have to understand is that Israel was a divided kingdom, right? Like, it was unified, and then it was divided. You had, you had um, Judea to the south. You had Galilee to the north. And what happened was that when the Assyrians came in, you know, several hundred years earlier, they basically hauled off all the Israelites. And, and the Assyrians were brutal. Like, they actually, they would take hooks and put it through their noses, and they would tie everybody along to a line, and you would be pulled along by hooks in your nose. Like, that's dehumanizing, that's degrading, that's, that's excruciatingly painful. It's disgusting, right? But that's how they, they basically were trying to say, your land is ours now. And so they came in, the Assyrians came in, and, and they did two things. One, they took their Assyrian people and they replaced the, the Israelites or they kind of intermingled with them and basically said, if we're not going to completely wipe you out, we're going to one way, we're going to do it another. And we're going to kind of take it over one way or another. So what happened is that the southern kingdom kind of stayed out longer and they kind of viewed the northern as less pure, more inferior. They were considered pagan and Gentile. They weren't pure Jewish people, right? And so um, they had a very, dis very low view of the northern people. And so Jesus was starting off amongst the, the power of the day. And he says, you guys aren't receptive. You're arresting your own prophets. I'm going to go north where people at least know that they're messed up, right? And so he goes up there. Um, now, what's interesting 
is that the Old Testament prophet Isaiah predicts this. And he says the Savior, the Messiah, the King, was going to come through this northern area. So what Isaiah, what, what Matthew does, remember when we looked at the genealogy of Jesus, it actually starts with Abraham, goes through David, and then gets to Jesus. It's identifying his belonging, his right, his authority in the Old Testament. He's trying to appeal to the religious people of the day. Jesus is one of us. He is the promised one. And so here he takes another, another crack at it, saying, our prophet even predicted that he would do this. And now look at what Jesus is doing. He's going through the northern area, teaching and preaching. Let's pay attention to that. Then it goes into what, what, uh, what Isaiah said in verses 15 and 16. He's, he's talking about um, uh, earlier prophecy in, in the book of Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. For those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. Now there's something really significant here because he says they sat in darkness. To sit literally means this is home. I am dwelling. I am occupying the space. This is where I call home in darkness. That's brutal. <laughs> like That's not very fun. And then it says they lived in a land where death casts its shadow. Darkness, sin, death were their home. That's their reality. That's what they knew. That was what was normal to them. Now, the southern part of the nation was saying, we're enlightened by the law, by religion. We are better than those northern pagan Gentiles, right? But what's interesting is that the very blindness and darkness is what made them so ready and ripe for the light. You see, the southern part thought, we have the light. We have the law. We have the temple, we have our structure, we have this, we have that. We don't need this Messiah. We got a good thing going. Don't mess it up. We have a good relationship with Rome. They let us do, we mind our business, they do theirs. It's a win-win situation. And Jesus says, no, we're called to so much more than that. You're living in darkness and you don't even realize it. You're blind and you don't even realize it. Whereas the northern part is saying, okay, like, we're, we're living in darkness. <laughs> we know it. We're, we're the outcasts. We're the pagans. We're the Gentiles. And you look later on where Jesus says, oh, you blind people. You think you see, but you're blind. He's talking to that, to that like, religious, like, we don't need Jesus. We got religion, right? And so in the northern part, it says, we live in darkness. We live in the shadow of death. We need the light. The religious people were thinking, we're fine. You get what's going on here? We'll get to that later on in Matthew. But I think it's just so important to understand that, that Jesus attacks their self-sufficient, self-supported, self-reliant religion because they didn't realize that they needed a Savior. A great light has dawned. It's sprung on them. It pierces the blindness and darkness of the Gentiles. Some get it. Others don't. Matthew 17. From then on. Bang. It's out of the blocks. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. Does that sound familiar? It's what John was saying. So basically, John is out there, repent of your sins for the kingdom of God is near. He gets arrested. What does Jesus do? He picks up that flag and he keeps on marching forward. He says, repent of your sins for this kingdom of God is near. 
from then on, it's go time. It's kind of like the first play. Okay, we got that first hit out of us. Now let's keep on going, right? Matthew 18 through 20. Uh, sorry, Matthew 4, 18 through 20. One day as Jesus was walking alone on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little further up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called to them to come too. They immediately followed him and leaving the boat and their father behind. Okay, Jesus sees these fishermen casting their nets out into the water. What, how do you do it? They basically would have these circular nets that would have weights around the, side, or the edges of it and then a rope. So they would literally cast it out, it would plop down, and then they would pull it back over and over and over and again. Sounds like ministry, doesn't it? Sounds like evangelism. I don't know, people don't listen to me, but I'm going to keep on sharing Jesus. I'm gonna, and next thing you know, I got a fish, woohoo, right? Like Jesus goes to people who know the futility of what they're about to, to engage, right? But they keep on doing it over and over because they know it matters. They know it matters. And so he goes to them and he says, hey, come and follow me. Um, and here's four things, though, four subtle little things that maybe we've never really thought about before. And we can easily miss just how radical they are. Number one. In that day and time, in this religion, prospective disciples chose their rabbi. I didn't realize that until this week. I'd forgotten that. Like, if I would say, hmm, I wonder which rabbi to go underneath and teach. I could kind of go and pick which one I want. I like this rabbi because he's strong on this. I like this rabbi because he's a, uh, I'm going to pick that one, right? It was radical for a rabbi to come and say, I choose you, I choose you, I choose you, I choose you, I choose all of you. It didn't happen. Jesus took the conventional function of the day and flips it on its head. I didn't realize just how radical it was for a rabbi to go and say, I choose you. And I think we need to accept that. Jesus chooses us. We love because he first loved us. If you are here, if you have a pulse, if you are breathing oxygen through your, through your lungs, Jesus loves you. He calls you. He wants you to follow him. We don't get to say, well, I don't know. We either accept or deny that call. Because in our realm, we're sovereign. I get to choose. I get the cafeteria plan Christianity, right? I want this, but not that. I want this and not that. No, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. He chooses us. It's all him or it's nothing. That's the first thing. Number two, the words come after me. Do you know where that comes from? I didn't realize this either. This is, what, this is where that big old fat commentary comes in handy, right? I learn all sorts of fun things. Come to me was the battle cry in the Old Testament when a king would say, follow me. It was a battle cry. The king, and sometimes even God himself, would say, follow me. We're going into battle. What Jesus does is, follow me. We're going on a peace mission. 
We're going on a rescue mission. We're going to go get these guys and gals out of here. So there again, this is not just a, hey, let's go hang out. This is an active, intentional, obedient discipleship following to join in with whatever he's doing. He says, I'm going on a peace mission. Let's go. Number three, the Old Testament mentions a couple times where God is calling people to be fishers, fishers, fishermen, right? But you know what their mission is? To hunt down sinful people to punish them. Part of the story of the Old Testament, God is a righteous God. He's a sovereign God. He can't allow sin in his presence. And so what are we going to do? Let's go punish the sinful. And so he literally said, you know, fishermen, hunters, let's go find it. Let's, let's scour through the hills. Let's, let's search the caves and let's go find the sinners to punish them. Ouch. But what does Jesus say? No, we're going to save them. Instead of seeking to punish, we seek to save. What's interesting is in Jeremiah 16, 16 through 18, is where he says, hunters and fishers, let's go out and, and, and find and punish the sinful people. Amos 4, 2 is talking about where the Assyrians were leading away the Israelites with hooks in their nose, fish hooks in their nose. But he says, no, let's go hook them towards life. Again, Jesus is flipping things from destruction to salvation. And the fourth is this. It says, Simon, also called Peter. In John chapter 1, verse 42, we see where Jesus already had met him, and he already renames him. To be called means we will receive a new identity. It's not just, here you are, I'm going to see how I can fit you in. No, 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 I'm going I'm to radically revolutionize your identity. He changes our identity. He changes our orientation. He changes our identification. He, it changes everything to fit into him. He gets to say, because he is our Lord, he is our Savior. And we see from both sets of these guys, the only response to this radical switching of the, the kingdom, right, is I'm in. They dropped everything. They didn't hesitate. They gave up everything. It's go time, and we want to get rid of anything that will hold us back. That's what we learn as he calls his first disciples. And then we see in the last part of this section, uh, verses 23 through 25, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began, uh, and, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. Here's three things that are going on. Jesus goes around this fertile soil of the pagan, Gentile, dark, blind land, of northern Israel, and what's he doing? He's doing three things, teaching, preaching, and healing. First of all, this word teaching, it comes from the Greek word didasko. It means to instruct, to give solid, sound doctrine and wise living. Where did he do that at? In the synagogue. It's kind of cool. He, he's, he's teaching in the synagogues, in the churches, and, and he says, hey, I want you to have sound, solid doctrine, because it matters, right? This is the head 
This is understanding. That's very important to him. But then the second part is preaching, announcing, proclaiming, pronouncing. Now, that's kind of kind of an interesting thing in our culture because we don't, we don't talk a lot about that, but it basically is proclaiming what is already true. Because there's, there's misconceptions. There's maybe twists and turns and, and things like that to where we, we kind of go with our thinking and stuff, but, but what really is true is what's really true. So the best thing we can do is surrender to the truth. This is the heart. This is the commitment, right? This is where we make our beliefs tangible. Jesus is publicly declaring the truthfulness that he is God incarnate into his creation to save us through grace and faith. That's his message. That's his mission. It's called the good news of the kingdom. That good news is salvation through Jesus. It's no longer the treadmill of religion. It's not a, an attempt at perfection. It's not an attempt of earning God's love and his good and, and proving our goodness. It's, it's, it's ex, instead of us sacrificing constantly to try to be enough for him, it's accepting his sacrifice on behalf of us. That's what he wants us to proclaim. That's what he wants us to remind ourselves and each other what is true, that he will have victory over sin and death and separation because of his sacrifice for us. Heaven is here in the person of Jesus. God is with us. We are free from empty religion, and he cares for us. So teaching, head, understanding, preaching, heart, and commitment, like I am into this truth. And then the last thing is healing. That's the hands. That's wholeness, right? That is the tangible expression of all this other stuff. That word comes from the word therapeu, right? Kind of a weird Greek word, but where do we? Therapy. This is what he's talking about here. It's healing. It's wholeness. It's restoring the things to the way God created. It's a cure. Jesus' ministry made a tangible difference in the world around him. People's lives were changed eternally because of him. So here's a question. What is the good news for us? In our lives, what is the good news? What is the gift of, that Jesus gives us through grace? How does that intersect with the reality of our lives? Each one of us is dealing with something unique. How is Jesus the good news in that situation? How is his love, his sacrifice, his gift of grace, the cure, the therapy, restoring the wholeness in that? But then we also have to look around us and say, what is the good news right here, right now, to the people around us? We need to see the darkness. We need to see the blindness around us and to be able to speak that truth, to proclaim that truth into the lives of those around us, too. How does the light of Jesus break into our reality? Here's another question. What's so good about the good news? You see, unfortunately, too often we attach all these other things to it. And we, we start going down the track of, of we attach all this other stuff to where all of a sudden now Christianity becomes a burden. It becomes a downer. It becomes like a heavy, a heavy burden, a heavy yoke that we put on ourselves, right? We put on each other and we attach all these other things to it. But it's called the good news. 
And so we have to ask, what's so good about the good news? I've been, I remember I had a mentor that was mentoring me in ministry, and he would routinely ask me, Jason, what is the good news for your area? Because really, it's, it's a universal thing. What's good is Jesus. What's good is salvation. What's good, what's good is grace. What's good is life. What's good is light. But the way that intersects into our experience can look different ways, right? But we need to be able to articulate the good news of Jesus, and then we need to also step back and say, what's so good about this good news? Are we proclaiming, are we living, are we in tangible ways the goodness of the good news to where other people are saying, I need whatever it is that you're on right now, <laughs> right? Like, that's how I came to the Lord. I, I mean, I prayed a prayer, and I would say I was a Christian, but I never really surrendered my life until I looked at somebody and they had every right to hate their life. But they loved Jesus and they walked in joy. I had never seen that kind of joy before. I had everything. I should have loved my life, but I hated my life. I was overcome with insecurity and, and fear and, and all sorts of things. And I was constantly living under this cloak of darkness. And I looked at him and I said, I don't know what you have but I, that I don't, but I, I have to have it. Otherwise, I'm going to die. And he says, oh, easy, Jesus, let's talk. And I was like, I know Jesus. And he goes, yeah, but let me really get you to know him. Surrender your life to him. Now, what's really cool about this, what's so good about the good news, um, this week I actually started reading a book called Gentle and Lowly. And he talks, the whole thing of gentle and lowly comes from the, from the verse uh, Matthew 11, uh, 28 through 30. Um, it says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is, that is the good news. I know what it's like to be able to, to, to wake up and feel, I don't know, I can't even get out of bed today. I, there's so much going on. There's so much heaviness around me. And then my phone starts going off, and I was like, ah, can I please go back to bed? Any, anybody else been there? If you're not nodding your head, I know you're a liar because I've talked with you, right? <laughs> like, like, it's just, it's, we live in a sinful, fallen, broken world. And it's heavy. And Satan's constantly attacking us, sometimes more than ever, Right? But we have to continually proclaim the truthfulness that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. And what's cool, if you get into the language of this, he's kind. Jesus is kind. Yes, sometimes it's, you know, when, when we're being disciplined as kids and our parents, why, don't, why are you so mean to me? What do you mean? Well, you're grounding me, you're taking away my phone, you're making me come home. No, that's the most kind thing I can do to you right now, Right? Like, if, if I'm not kind, you're, you know, you're, you're going to feel it, right? Like, but Jesus is kind with us. He, he's looking for our freedom. And what's so cool is that in uh, studying that book and then in a devotional I was doing, the verse Galatians chapter, uh, uh, Galatians 5.1 came up. Christ has set us free. This means we're really free. I love the repetition here. He says, we're free. I know. No, you're free. I know. No, you're free. Say, I'm free. free. Now let's really say, I'm free. free. One more time. Come on. I am free. I am free. Is that true? 
Because if you know Jesus, you're free. Amen? Why do we keep on going back to the yoke of slavery? And what's crazy is that the context that Paul is writing to, he's relating to the religious echelon of his day. Saying, don't go back like a dog to his vomit to the religion that held you enslaved. You've been set free from that treadmill. You've been set free from that performance. You've been set free from, from that death. The yoke is easy and kind and light. I was talking with Ali's dad this week, and, and it was really cool because he, he has this, he's studied this before. What is a yoke? It's a custom-fit apparatus that would yoke between two oxen, that was custom-fit to that oxen. And what was the point? To share the load. Well, the cool thing is, is that the yoke that Jesus puts between us and him, 100% of the weight is on his shoulders. He's just guiding us as we go through life. And it's basically, I got this, Jason. Are you with me? It's not, well, I got to do my part too. My part is just simply surrendering. But I want to go over here. No, 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 no. Come on, stay over here. You don't want to go over there. I'm kind, remember? I don't want you to experience that. We don't want to return to the sinfulness that he sets us free from. Our job as followers of Jesus is to show people what's so good about the good news that they want to experience it as well. We do that through what we say, teaching. We do that through what we reveal, we pronounce, right? We, we, we preach. And then what we do, bringing wholeness. What we say, what we live out, and how we affect other people really matters. Gentle and Lowly had a great quote that I've, I just can't get over it this week. Um, I might just get it tattooed on my back or something. Well, then I couldn't read it, but never mind. I'll put it in reverse. That way I can look in a mirror or something like that. But it says this, Jesus is accessible. Jesus is accessible. No one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus. Read the Gospels. Who did he hang out with? He was considered a drunk and a glutton because he hung out with drunks and gluttons. They flocked to him. They loved him. Not because they were, he was condoning what they were doing, but because he set them free from that. I meet you. I love you where you're at. I love you too much to leave you that way. Is Jesus saying that to us? Jesus is accessible. No one in human history has ever been more accessible, approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites. No hoops to jump through. The minimum bar to, embrace of, uh, to the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself to him. It's all he needs. Indeed, it's the only thing he works with. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment required. He says, I will give you rest. His rest is gift, not transaction. Is that good news or is that good news? That is straight from the Bible. That is straight from the words of Jesus himself. I mean, it's not word for word, but it pretty much is. He loves you. You matter to him. He says, come to me and I will take the burden off and I will, I will, 
I will set your thinking straight. I will set your life straight. I will restore your life to the way that I called you to be. Do we live out this good news with our head, with our heart, and with our hands? And again, look where he's doing this, right? One, he's teaching in the synagogues. This matters. This really, really matters. But he's also proclaiming and healing the other six and a half days out of the week. When we're in here, I, I love hearing the voices of a hundred plus people just belting out the truthfulness of God's word. That is proclaiming. Can we do that outside these walls? Can we do that as we go home? Can we do that tomorrow morning as we go to work? Can we do that on Friday night as we're hanging out with friends? Can we do that on the weekend when we're doing whatever else we do, right? And what's so fun is that verses 23 through 25 says that people start to take notice all over the region of Galilee and a little bit further over here and a little bit further over here and a little bit further. And next thing you know, the whole area of that world hears about this Jesus guy and that it's go time and the word is out and people are responding. So here's the big idea. To be a Christian means that we completely follow Jesus. It's not just mental assent to something. It's not just a statement of belief. It's not just showing up to church every now and then. It's not just having a Bible, you know, on your coffee table. It's not just subscribing to the right websites or, or giving to the right cause. It is simply this, following Jesus when he calls us. Giving our lives to him. So how is Jesus calling you to follow him today? How is he calling us to abandon some things, to walk away from some things? How is he calling us to pick different things up, to engage things? How is he maybe calling us to, to maybe stay? Because if you look at where Jesus, sometimes he heals them and then he says, let's go, come on. And to other people, he says, they say, can I follow you? He goes, no, go back home and tell everybody about it. There is no specific answer to that. Sometimes God calls us to come with him. Sometimes he says, take me back, right? Whatever it is, we need to answer that call to what he's calling us to. But here's the thing. We are profoundly, permanently, eternally changed when we decide to follow him. Some of us here need to allow Jesus on his rescue mission to catch us, to bring us to himself. We've been out there in the deep end. We've been doing our thing. We've been, you know, living in darkness. We've been, no, I got this. I got this. And, and, and maybe it's, it's one way or another. I don't know. But maybe it's time for us to surrender. Maybe it's time for us to say, you know what? I can't do this on my own anymore. I need to surrender to him. Some of us might say, hey, I'm a Christian. I fully believe it. I've been trying to walk with him, everything like that. But we just need to say, it's go time and I don't want to miss out anymore. I want to be a part of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's doing and what he's going to do. Others of us, it might just be a small tweak. Maybe we're already 110% in, but it's kind of like, yes, I needed to hear this this morning because I've been fighting discouragement. I've been, Jesus will work in and through you every day as we surrender to him. So, this morning, one, let's consider the cost of following Jesus. I don't want to blindly, you know, just say, hey, let's go, and everybody's like, woohoo. There's a cost. 
And no, I'm not going to have an altar call this morning because of these two things. One, I want us to count the cost. I don't want to be emotionally manipulative. I don't want to whip us into a frenzy and then run out of here and then be like, uh, now what? Go home. Talk with them. Just say, what are you calling me to? What are you calling me from? And what's the cost of that going to be? Think it through. It might cost us whatever it is. I don't know. You can fill in your own blank on that, right? But the other side of that, though, too, is we also need to count the cost of not following him. Being our own savior, being our own Lord, being our own Messiah, being our own sovereign. Some people, you know, kind of want to go into the next life and kind of be the head honcho. That sounds like hell to me. I can't even run my own life very well, let alone be a sovereign God over my own world. That's not the good news to me. We need to count the cost of going down the path that the world has us on. What will it get us? And what will be the cost in, for eternity if we turn our back on the Creator here on this earth? We want to grow disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. I'm going to close out with this. See if you guys can follow me on this. Every Christian is a follower. Every Christian is a follower. It's not an option. He doesn't say, hey, if everybody, everybody agree, let's take a vote. Is Jesus God? Is he ourself? Okay, everybody vote. Okay, if you voted good, you're good, right? No, no, no. He says, come, follow me. Join in with what I'm doing. Every Christian is a follower. Every follower is a disciple. I know that there's been movements over the years where say, well, not every, not every Christian is called to be a disciple. And I just scratch my head at that. I'm like, how could they not be a disciple if they're called to follow him? Discipleship is not an option. It's a, it's a, it's a mandatory part of it. It's, it's one and the other together. It's, it's inseparable. Every Christian is a follower. Every follower is a disciple. Every disciple is a disciple maker. A disciple wasn't really a disciple until they were discipling somebody else. There again, we live in this perpetual faith infancy and adolescence, right? Because we just, we come, we're fed, and then we go home, we try to make it through our week. You know what? We are not called to just passively go through our week just waiting till next Sunday, right? He calls us to engage what he's doing. God has gifted you with the good news. He's gifted you with the, with the ability to teach, to preach, and to live it out, to bring healing and wholeness into people's lives around you. It's not complicated. It's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. So as a Christian, we are called to make disciples. That's not just me. It's not just true. It's not the, the gig leaders. It's not the, the kid leaders downstairs. It's all of us. We are called to make disciples in our everyday lives. When does that start? Now. Because it's go time. Amen? Let's pray. God, we recognize that you call us to yourself. God, you meet us just like you met 
the disciples and those that you called 2,000 years ago. Some were blue-collar workers. Some were, were hated tax collectors. They were traitors. They had turned their backs on their own people. Some had been prostitutes. Some had been so deep into the religious movement of their day that they had to realize that they had missed the very Savior himself. He reached out to drunks, to gluttons. He reached out to people who were possessed by demons. Jesus, you loved them. No one was out of your net. <laughs> and the same is true with us today. No matter what it is that we're dealing with, things that we've done or have been done to us, things that we're experiencing, the heaviness that maybe we wake up with or deal with throughout the day, nothing is out of your reach. Nothing is out of your sovereignty. Nothing is out of your providence. God, I pray that you would just speak that truth into our lives every day. God, that when the storms are raging, we know that you're right there with us. God, and if you don't calm the storms outside of us, we know at least you can calm the storms inside of us. Help us to speak that truth to each other. God, that we would seek you, that other things that would seek to distract us, to pull our attention and our affection away from you. God, that we would surrender that to you. God, I don't want to waste time. I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste anybody here's time. I don't want to waste your time. You've given us a gift. God, we don't want to bury that. We want to engage that. We want to live that out. We want to experience what you've called us to. God, we want to see lives change for eternity. God, we want to be filled with joy because of what we see you doing in the middle of all this. God, guide us. God, like we said too, if maybe any of us here this morning or that are watching or listening later, God, if we haven't ever surrendered to you, God, help us to take that step. Show us your goodness. Show us your love. Show us that you are unlike anything else in this world. God, this culture is filled with imitators and counterfeits that promise one thing but enslave us to another. But God, you are good. You are kind. You are loving. God, if that's something that we want to do or we've recently done or we want to do right now, God, I just pray that you would, you would give us the courage to make that decision. God, that we can find somebody here this morning or call me or, or, or get on the website. I think there's even a link, God. I just pray that we wouldn't walk in isolation. God, I pray too just for the rest of us that are maybe feeling stuck. Help us to run to you, to follow you, to experience that freedom because you love us. God, we love you. We pray these things in your name.